You're listening to WKXL in the morning. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead. Let's get the latest in New Hampshire government news with our friends at the New Hampshire Bulletin. Get their articles at NewHampshireBulletin.com. They join WKXL in the morning every Friday, and this week I'm joined by reporter Amanda Goki. Welcome back to the show. Hi, AJ. Thanks for having me. So you're in the middle of working on an article, which is about something we've been talking about basically in your previous two times you joined me on the show, which is on energy efficiency uh, legislation that's been pushed through. What's going on with that? Yeah, so today was a big day for energy efficiency. Um, House Bill 549 was signed into law today uh, by Governor Sununu, um, and this is kind of a moment that folks have been really waiting for um, as they've sort of seen this program um, from last year, actually all the way back to 2020, there was a three-year plan um, that was that was agreed upon by all the stakeholders. That plan in November, this past November, was rejected by the Public Utilities Commission. Funding for energy efficiency was cut. And really what this bill does is it walks back some of those um, major cuts. It sets funding at 2020 levels for these programs. So I talked to some energy contractors today and really what they were saying is this is going to allow them to let people know that they can start applying for the program again. The utilities are expecting um, their programs to return to some sort of normalcy. Um, that could be as early as May, they're thinking, um, and we're going to start seeing the NH Saves program open up. So for people who are looking to do an energy audit on their home, if they want to do some weatherization, that's sort of one of these things that you can do in the in the midst of a really expensive um, heating season that we're in. It's one of the things that you can do to keep your uh, energy costs down as we're seeing them really, really spike. And obviously today with... Um, the news of uh, Ukraine, you know, that's another one of the big ways that we might see the impact or really feel the impact here at home is is our energy costs. Um, so this is something that uh, the timing is, is is right about the same time. Yeah, it'll be fantastic because it's going to start hopefully warming up soon. It was so warm and then it got just ridiculously cold. We're recording on Thursday, February 24th. And it, it's just darn cold again and there's a blizzard coming in uh, at probably when this broadcasts uh, Friday morning on, on WKXL in the morning. And we're going to have 8 to 18 inches of snow, which is just ridiculous and annoying considering it was 60 degrees two days ago so it'll be really good to see by the time this funding really comes through and everyone's able to figure out how they're going to utilize it it's going to be the warm months when that work can actually happen yeah i know and the temperature swings are another good reminder it's something that always comes up when i'm doing stories on climate change is just these kind of erratic weather patterns that are really different from you know i think folks who remember the new hampshire winters of you know 40 years ago it was bitter cold all through the winter you didn't have sort of a mix of rain and then snow and i will say you know for energy efficiency the less energy that we're using it, it, it is also an important uh, climate measure you know to, to be using less fossil fuels to decrease our dependency on fossil fuels so that's sort of another um, silver lining in this in this conversation and I should also note um, you know as much as people have been looking forward to the passage of this of this bill 549 into law um, the advocates that I spoke with also really emphasized you know this is putting a this is putting a cap on what we can spend on energy efficiency if you compare it to that plan their original three-year plan that the stakeholders had put forward. I mean, that was a broad coalition of people. That was the utilities were on board with this. 
that was, you know, Clean Energy New Hampshire, the Office of the Consumer Advocate. Um, that was really ramping up spending on energy efficiency because they were able to demonstrate that these programs were cost effective. So if you weatherize your home, you're spending less on energy, but you're also decreasing the demand for energy, which can right. lower rates for everybody. So this is this new bill, while everyone I think is is uh, glad to see it move forward and agree that it's it's the best solution we can sort of have hoped for. It was bipartisan. Um, you know, they they were noting that there's this kind of hard cap, and that will really limit what we're able to do moving forward. Yeah, with climate and energy being your beat at the New Hampshire Bulletins, it's got to be an ongoing story where it's an ongoing thing you've been covering is alternative means of energy production in the state. It's it's hard <laughs> because we we don't we have ice in the winter and it's not necessarily always uh, windy where you need it to be windy for wind. Solar's rough because you can only have its uh, snow accumulation such. Batteries are extraordinarily expensive to be able to offload that energy that is produced during those times when maybe it could be helpful to be used a few hours later and uh, to be able to just to put at least from the heating perspective be able to offset some of that has to be uh, a hugely productive thing to the grid yeah for sure and what you're talking about is like baseload power and i think um you know people who are proponents of, of green or carbon, non-carbon emitting energy. Um, some people love nuclear energy for that reason. Other people, obviously, nuclear is like a very divisive um, yeah. form of energy production. Unfortunately. It has, <laughs> it has a of, uh, yeah, folks who are against that. But um, you're right. I mean, hydro is another one that you can get that sort of baseload baseload power for, but the less that we're able to bring down our actual total pie of what we need, I think that the the, the easier those other um, conversations become. So it's, and, and it's the, the cheapest um, sort of option available is to just use less, less energy and become, uh, become more aware of that. You covered the the state house was looking at voter requirements in the state. This has been an ongoing issue for several years now, at least, at least, it's been several years since I've been here, and the whole time I've been here, there's been conversations around uh, what how voting should be handled in the state. Uh, a few years back, it was like two or three years ago, I believe, it went to the New Hampshire Supreme Court with regards to college students voting was one of the big the big aspects to it. But what uh, was signed on this week? Yeah, it's a great question. So the House and the Senate are both sort of looking at essentially mirror image bills. Um, so there's a House version and there's a Senate version. They, they say the same thing. It's really looking at residency requirements and they're looking at changing the Constitution, the New, the New Hampshire Constitution, which currently says you have to be domiciled in New Hampshire in order to vote here, which essentially means you have to live in New Hampshire. New Hampshire has to be your home for you to vote here, um, which is something that's sort of known. It's accepted. But as you mentioned, there is this big debate um, about college students. Um, that's been a controversial one in, in recent years. Um, and so what this language looks at doing is changing that um, so that instead of domicile, the language would be primary residence. Um, and it also would mention that you have to be a citizen of the United States and a citizen of New Hampshire. So I think the authors were really trying to drive home that point. There was concern raised about, you know, is this bill really just a veiled attempt to target college students? 
Um, that was a little bit unclear. People who were opposed to this said it was unnecessary um, since it wouldn't fundamentally change who, who has the right to vote um, in the state or not. It's a really messy situation to be able to lock down legally, I'd imagine, because um, you're not necessarily you're united. We're all United States citizens, but say you're a New Hampshire citizen isn't a thing. <laughs> That's right. That's correct. And that was something that um, people did mention in in the testimony was there's not a document that you can provide that proves your residency or that proves your citizenship of New Hampshire. You have a passport. You know, that's that's very clearly defined. We know what it means to be a citizen. It, it, what's funny is the people that are that are pushing for this legislation are the ones that would be the first to say, no, we don't want anything like that. <laughs> And there was a really funny comment made as well um, in the House Election Law Committee. Um, Representative Muirhead was saying, you know, there was a period of time where he lived in Texas and he was saying, I lived in Texas, but I still felt in my heart I was a citizen of New Hampshire. So he was kind of talking about the uh, symbolic meanings there. Yeah. And I think that was that illustrated how messy this could get pretty quickly. Um, and, and, and these terms, as you mentioned, do, it is important that they be clearly defined. Mm-hmm. Um, the authors of this legislation, you know, said they really did want a term that was clear and understandable. That was something also, you know, Liz Tantarelli of the League of Women Voters spoke on this. And she said, you know, I have to explain to just the everyday person, what are the requirements to vote? And it's very hard when you start getting into terms that people just so your average person isn't going to really know what it means. Yeah, there's this this weird place with this where you need to have a, a law that's going to be able to make it through the New Hampshire Supreme Court, which so it needs to have a certain amount of legalese involved in it. But on the other hand, it needs to be uh, just reasonably phrased where your average Joe who doesn't pay attention to what's going on in the news every five seconds like we have to with our current uh, employment situations is going to know, yes, I can vote or no, I can't vote or the, the 15 million college students that are in the state from Franklin Pierce University to the University of New Hampshire trying to figure out whether they're legally allowed to vote and if it's they're going to get in potentially legal trouble if they vote when they shouldn't have. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, remember I, I went through that when I was a master's student and I just had to come with my lease to the to the polling place. And that was that was what I had to do. And it was uh, relatively clear. But there was that confusion beforehand. Mm-hmm. Of how do I how do I approach this? How do I tackle it? Um, so I, I think that, yeah, clarity is, is certainly an important one. And, and the lawmakers are talking about that, but there's mm-hmm. just not great agreement yet about w- what it will look like. Um in the actual language itself. Yeah, as fun as it kind of is to harp on the people that are trying to get this legislation through, I mean, there are there are serious uh, implications with college towns when it comes to the wh- who's voting there. I mean, you talk about the University of New Hampshire, it's, I mean, there's more people at the university than there are likely residents of that town. And as a, I went to Franklin Pierce University and, and down in Ringe, and there was a tremendous amount of friction between the, the, the residents of that town and the police department versus the university the university students that were there and um, there's no you you go to the government and vote for change that you hope have hope to have happen in this town but college students are gone in two to six years essentially depending on what programs they're going through so it, it's there's no no matter what no one's going to be happy I got the feeling 
Yeah, it's definitely a divisive one. I mean, and on the flip side of that, there was, you know, some testimony that emphasized some of these college students are going to stick around and make mm-hmm. New Hampshire their, their permanent home. Yeah. And many of them don't have the option. Uh, actually, it could be, and I should fact check myself on this, um, that, they're, that they're not allowed to vote in their in their home state um, yeah. or the state where they were living prior to, to moving to New Hampshire. So in that case, it raises the issue of are you potentially disenfranchising people who really should have the right to vote? And obviously that that was a, an issue that was settled in the courts um, as far as allowing college students the right to vote in New Hampshire very clearly. Um, yeah, especially for Edmonton, like the community college system and the University of New Hampshire. I mean, a big part of the reason why they exist in the state is to uh, educate people that hopefully will stay here and improve our economy, become longtime residents, pay many, many taxes to pay for the future of the university. Right. And in, a, in an aging state like New Hampshire that has, you know, the shortage of, of workers, the staffing shortages that is an aging population, um, being able to retain some of the younger college-aged folks and um, have them stay here seems like it would be a great way of addressing some of those issues. What's the next steps for this? So it's been through the, it'll, it's moving through both bodies. Um, I think at some point they'll probably have to concur um, and, and it'll it'll go from there. So we'll see. Moving on, you, you wrote uh, an article a couple days ago about uh, about Afghan resettlement in New Hampshire, and you spoke to uh, a recent um, immigrant. So I actually spoke with uh, State Representative Sophia Wazir, who immigrated here when she was, it was 15 years ago that she came, but um, she had some, there were some similarities with her experience in resettling um, in New Hampshire. She did come from Afghanistan. She had she had fled the Taliban. She left there when she was a young child. Um, I believe she was around six years old when she left. Um, her family spent some time um, in a refugee camp in Uzbekistan before they were able to eventually resettle in New Hampshire. And now she works with Ascentria, um, which is an organization that helps with this resettlement process. And they have been receiving um, refugees uh, from the recent um, resettlement process from Afghanistan. Um, so she was able to talk to me a little bit about what that experience is like, both from her personal experience, but also now being established here, um, going on to become a state representative um, and helping helping people adjust to a new culture, a new language oftentimes. Um, it's really a, a lot of changes that people are dealing with all at once. The, the housing shortage that everyone is feeling is also impacting these new arrivals. Um, so that's that's one of the things that they're, these agencies like Accentria and the in- International Institute of New England, that's another one that works in New Hampshire on the resettlement process. So those are some of the things that they're looking at. They have things like trainings for new arrivals. Um, they'll, they'll help people get access to food. Um, they'll help sort of start the process of looking for employment. Um, And they have really a period of, it's a pretty short period of about 90 days where there's some funding from the federal government to help people restart their lives here. 
Yeah, and and that's that's not very much time at all. Like, imagine trying to find like having an apartment or a house somewhere in New Hampshire, and then saying, "Okay, uh, thirty days find something else" is basically an impossible thing. Ninety days isn't much better when uh, there's almost nothing on the market right now, and um, the re- like Manchester's the only place you can basically find anything that's reasonably affordable if you're not in an income-based housing situation. So, I mean, what's that landscape look like, and is she optimistic? that this is going to be, um, there's not going to be issues with us. Yeah, 90 days is super short. I should say both Accentria and IINE have also put in these um, sort of neighborhood networks. Um, people who are in the community who are wanting to work with these refugees and so help support them financially and just in terms of things like transportation, Um or just having a network of people if you need a ride to go to the uh, doctor's office, um, things like that. Um, so that that support system, I think, it is in place for many of these families. They've been able to get that that coverage, um, and that's been an additional that's been helpful, I think. But I know the housing issue. Um, when I was when I was talking with some of the caseworkers, they were saying. There are still people who are housed currently in um, hotels and in situations that are um, just a stopgap, really, for the they're not permanent um, housing solutions. And in longer term, we do see out migrations where people leave the state because the cost of housing is so high and because sometimes people want to go to be closer to their communities where there's you know more diverse communities than than in new hampshire um so those are some of the the things that we're we're seeing um representative wazir asked for people to be understanding if you see you know afghan people who are walking around she said for her own family it took them three years until they were able to afford their own car obviously we live in a rural state and it's very auto-centric, but um, these these new arrivals just don't have um, necessarily the option to secure a car right away. Um, I would say, luckily, there are a lot of employment opportunities right now. It sounds like there's a lot of- Yeah, it's a good time for that. Yeah, companies and institutions that are eager to, to hire these new people. Um, but one of the caseworkers I spoke with, Henry Harris at IINE, he was saying, you know, these companies also need to be a little bit flexible. They need to know maybe they have to provide a van to get people mm-hmm. from where they live to the job site. Because, again, as I mentioned, they don't necessarily have a car yet. Um, and we know public transportation in New Hampshire can be pretty spotty. So things like that are, are what's um, in the works right now to get to get folks settled. So we've got about a minute left. I mean, how? what sort of um, volume of population are they expecting to be coming or have already come from the Afghan uh, withdrawal? So I know Centria said that they are they were anticipating about 60 additional people to arrive at some point in February from what they had already received. Which, um, overall, I believe it was around 150. It might have been a little bit higher than that between the two organizations. Um, of that additional 60, I believe Centria was was looking to receive. Re- about 10 in in New Hampshire. So somewhere around 150 um, people who who are coming to to New Hampshire. And a reason that number is so low goes back to the our housing crunch that we that we have here. I know Central, which works also in Massachusetts, was able to to take some more people in the larger state. 
Amanda Gokey, reporter over here at the New Hampshire Bulletin. Get more from them at NewHampshireBulletin.com. You're listening to WKXL in the morning. I'm your host, AJ Kierstead. We'll be right back after this.